I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah. Hi, this is Sarah from Philadelphia, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, Sarah in Philadelphia. We actually think that we might already have used the intro of Sarah in Philadelphia and just accidentally failed to transfer it from the unused uh, box to the used box in our filing system. But we decided that it doesn't matter because her voice is so lovely. If we are using it for a second time, then then it's just nice to hear from Sarah again, who probably could... Uh, probably could get quite a lot of work in the voiceover industry if she were ever so inclined yeah oh that's brilliant great way to start uh, episode 149 of 2020 yes we are one off the 150 mark that david has been aiming for pretty much ever since we recorded that uh, emergency podcast the two day the two podcast day back at the australian open one of them recorded in the company of leslie bowery uh, in Garden Square. Oh, what a long time ago that feels! It's been, it's been a bumpy old time in the UK over the last couple of days. Um, we're affected. I'm sure you're affected. Um, our thoughts are with you. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be a bumpy time for a while, and uh, we'll be, we'll be doing podcasts throughout it, won't we, Matt? Yes. It's it's very nice to be talking to you both. We've somehow plunged to even lower depths. <laughs> but I guess I'm looking forward today to inhabiting some alternate universes on this podcast. Yes, we're not just living in the past today. We're living in an alternate universe past because today and Thursday we're bringing you Sliding Doors Tennis, which is kind of our very own concept isn't it should we should we trademark this in some way can we patent it let's see if it's if it's a success first shall we and then and then we'll get on to the uh, patent lawyers wouldn't have wouldn't Gwyneth Paltrow have something to say about that I don't think she owns the right to alternate alternate timelines <laughs> um, well my favorite my favorite genre of fiction is counterfactual fiction. There's a book called Idlewild, which um, imagines a world in the 90s where neither JFK nor Marilyn Monroe died in the 60s. And it's sort of projecting into the future and imagining a world 
that is entirely different and it's called well, I, what happens oh, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna spoil it for you or the listeners i highly recommend mm. anyway and it's called idlewild because of course idlewild does anybody know this putting you on the spot here no this is a great little bit of trivia idlewild was the name of jfk airport before oh. it became jfk airport in- how big's the book how long would it take me to read <laughs> I don't know how fast a reader you are, David, but I would call it a medium-sized book. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I take a long time to read books. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, it, it's worth the effort if you've got time in your hands in the middle of the night, you know. Um, we, uh, As we did last week, shall I start off with uh, David Whitaker's review of, of what we're about to do, podcast-wise? He says, it's a really good idea. Um, like I like counterfactual history. If Hitler had gone ahead with the invasion of Britain in 1940 and not bottled it, dot, dot, dot. What if Lee Harvey Oswald had missed, etc.? What if it hadn't rained in Henman's semi-final with Ivan Isovich? So my dad has very much understood the premise of today's podcast. And one of those three we're going to do. We are, <laughs> yes. Thank you very much, uh, David Whitaker slash dad, for your suggestions. Um, so yeah, that's a little teaser of what's to come. We are... We are thinking of sort of momentary, seemingly insignificant at the time occurrences in tennis, which may or may not have entirely altered the course of tennis history. Uh, David, would you like to kick us off with your first sliding doors tennis moment? Yeah, I would. Uh, I'd like to imagine a world in which Rafael Nadal was not left-handed, had (laughs) never decided to to play left-handed or or just ended up playing left-handed and it's one of the it's actually one of the things that I've wanted to come back to for for quite a while probably a year and a half ever since we did our Rafael Nadal story podcast when we where we went deep into his his past and tried to just chronicle his career from from a very young age and and during that process we had been like many other outlets taken in by the the myth it turns out that his uncle tony had decided that he should play left-handed in order to be more successful and in order to discomfort his opponents more um and we 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 talked about that on that podcast um turns out that that isn't what happened and we, at the time i mean i think that that podcast got some some great feedback people enjoyed it but a number of Nadal diehards said, can't believe you're still going with this view that Rafael Nadal's uncle decided he should play left-handed one day um, because that's not the case. So I've always thought, you know, one day I'd like to really look into that and find out what the situation was. And and when we came up with sliding doors tennis and I, I, I chose this as one of my, my selections, um, Matt, produced the Rafael Nadal autobiography, which contains the following passage. I've seen reports in the news media saying that Tony forced me to play left-handed and that he did this because it would make me harder to play against. Well, it's not true. It's a story the newspapers have made up. The truth is that I began playing when I was very small and because I wasn't strong enough to hit the ball over the net, I'd hold the racket with both hands, on the forehand as well as the backhand. Then, one day my uncle said, there are no professional players who play with two hands. Not strictly speaking true. Monica Sellis did all right. Uh, Fabrice Santoro did all right. Uh, But anyway, 
There are no players, uh, prof- professional players who play with two hands and we're not going to be the first ones, so you've got to change. So I did. And what came naturally to me was to play left-handed. Why? I can't tell. Because I write with my right hand and when I play basketball or golf or darts, I love the way he just adds, or darts, <laughs> I play right-handed too. But in football, I play with my left and my left foot is much stronger than my right. People say this gives me an advantage on the double-handed backhand and that may be right. Having more feeling, more control on both hands than the majority of players has to work in my favour, especially on cross-court shots where a little extra strength helps. But this was definitely not something that Tony, in a moment of genius, thought up. It's dumb to imagine that he might have been able to force me to play in a way that did not come naturally to me. So pretty emphatic uh, rejection of that that story that we've all kind of taken as just conceived wisdom from over the years. What I mean, a couple of things there. He's often talked about by commentators as looking like he's got two forehands, conventional forehands in, in the way he's able to strike the ball in terms of the, the sheer muscularity of his game, the way he's able to put you on the back foot from both sides equally strongly. Um, and and so and and he's alluding to that in that analysis of why it's useful for him to play left-handed i personally would distill it down more to the left-handed forehand versus if he had ended up with a right-handed forehand and specifically the difference it would have made in his rivalry against Roger Federer because for the vast majority of Nadal's career I would call his left-handed forehand the Roger Federer kryptonite if you look at their careers and the way Federer dealt with everybody else until Nadal came along he could handle it all he seemed to have zero weakness until this guy came along with this looping forehand lasso cross-court whipping forehand that looped over the net bounced and took off at his left shoulder uh, and over his head a lot of times and Federer's backpedaling hitting that backhand single-handedly and it's just waiting to be clobbered and and if you look at their their records of grand slams my sliding doors feel to this is what it would have done to the rivalry had Nadal been right-handed and not left-handed what it would have done to the Grand Slam Hall. And I say to you that their record of 10-4 in favour of Rafael Nadal would have been nothing like 10-4 had Rafael Nadal been right-handed. That's very vague, David. I want numbers. <laughs> well, I think you could you could probably have a... I mean, it's a 3-1 head-to-head for Nadal at the Australian Open. It's a 6-0 head-to-head for Nadal at the French Open. I think you could you could probably give Federer two of those French Opens because he was the second best clay court player in the world throughout most of Rafa Nadal's dominance. Um, and I just don't think he would have been beaten in all of them. I think Federer would have found the answers if it was not for that... S- serious weakness that he has up high on the backhand that could only be exposed by Nadal's left-handed forehand. 
So two of the Frenchies, how many of the Australians? I think Federer would have won all the Australians. Personally. What about 2008 Wimbledon, the finest of I margins? Think, I think Federer would have won that as well. All right, so Federer's winning everything. <laughs> Nadal is left if, with just a little handful of French Opens, a modest I, I think, sort of eight or something. Nadal is, is a brilliant player. Um, but if you, in their head-to-head, if you just take away his left-handedness against Federer, that very specific detail, I don't think he hurts Federer in the way that he did for all those years. I feel like Matt really wants to disagree, and I'm here for it, Matt. Take it away. Well, what I was mainly thinking is that the Nadal fans are going to be coming for us again after this <laughs> podcast, having having made a correction from the thing that they had a problem with last time. That, that uh, we've... We giveth and we take it away. <laughs> Nothing wrong with being left-handed and having a strength, is there? But I think, I, you know... I certainly agree with the overall premise that Nadal's leftiness in the early stages of his rivalry with Federer was a very large contributing factor matchup wise in terms of why Nadal dominated that head to head um you know we watched back didn't we a couple of their fairly early matches on clay this year that we watched the 2005 French Open match and the 2006 Rome match and you know you see in both the way Nadal is able to pin Federer in his backhand corner because of his lefty forehand bouncing up high, jumping up high, as you've said. But I think it's doing Nadal, the tennis player, a slight disservice if you don't take into account the other things which made him a problem for Federer. And I think one of those was an ability to play his best tennis on the biggest points. And I still think he can do that as a righty. His ability to live physically with Federer was was so strong, even when he was a teenager. I guess I think Federer might have got a couple of them, but I think the majority still would have been going with Nadal. Um, And I also think it might have been interesting how their rivalry would have developed because Federer talks so much about how Nadal pinning him in that backhand corner improved his backhand. And we've seen in the last few years, Federer really turned that rivalry around. And I wonder whether, I guess, the payoff might have come later for Nadal against against Federer if he was if he was right-handed. Maybe Federer would have had more success early, but maybe Nadal would have ended up sort of turning that rivalry around and and having better results against Federer later in his career. Um, I also think Nadal being right-handed would have impacted his rivalry with Djokovic, and I think. Nadal's real strength gets a bit negated by the fact that he's left-handed against Djokovic because he's able to use that his own backhand against him. Um, I guess I think that overall it might not have made a huge difference to the numbers, but I agree with you that the way their rivalries would have developed over the years probably would have been different, if that makes sense. I think early on Federer would have had more success if he wasn't playing a left-handed Nadal. Particularly when he was at his absolute best, Federer. Indeed. I'm um, I'm putting us all on the spot here, but what proportion of, let's keep it to men's just for the sake of putting us all a bit less on the spot, uh, what proportion of world number ones have been left-handers? You've got Connors, McEnroe, Nadal. Uh, Muster. 
Vilas was lefty, wasn't he? Yeah, but he wasn't world number one. Not world number one. Rio, Rios. He should have been. Was Newcomer lefty? Ooh, David, no, the past. I don't think he was. No, I don't think he was. Um, you've obviously got Goran, but he wasn't world number one. My my question being, is it one of those things where we think of it as this huge tennis advantage, but actually the stats don't quite bear it well, out? there are obviously a lot fewer of them. Yes, that's what I mean. But is it greater than the proportion of them in yeah, I'd, tennis? I'd, I don't know. I mean, I, I would. I think of it as an advantage because of its rarity uh, and the angle of attack and and, and all all that sort of thing. Okay. Well, for McEnroe, how uh, make McEnroe a righty? How does mm. that affect things? I, I I definitely feel like it was an advantage to him. F- fewer than uh, seven I, slams. Not that sure. lefty Pro- slice pro- serve? Probably, yeah. Yeah? I, I think probably. Mm. Okay. Are we all righties here? We are, aren't we? Mm. Yeah. Is that where we're going wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I I was uh, very strangely, for no no reason, and it perplexed my coach very much, I was a right-footed ice skater. There you go. I do, it, do everything else... No, sorry. A left-footed <laughs> ice skater. Oh, it's stone soup all over again, isn't it? Um, and I also, um, much to my dad's distress throughout my childhood, he used to tell me nobody would want to go on a dinner date with me. I uh, I eat left-handed. I hold my knife and fork left-handed, which I grew up thinking was like the most catastrophic um, etiquette error of all time. I've been told I pick up a guitar left-handed. I can't but, even but play the guitar. But don't play it. You just you just pick <laughs> guitars up and then put them yeah. down again. Where, when or I'm with trying your to do left air, hand. When I'm trying to do air guitar with the tennis racket, which do you air guitar left-handed? Unusual. Yeah, turns out I didn't know that. Right, <laughs> Matt, you're a righty. Yes, at, at everything. At everything, right? Okay. Mm. Right. Well, I mean, well, I mean, the problem with this format is we will never know. We will never the, the ever know. The beauty of this format is that we can. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we should probably quote Nadal himself here with his "if if if doesn't exist." Yes. Line. Oh. Well, let's just end the podcast there. <laughs> yeah. <then. laughs> we'll, we'll need to quote that after every suggestion, Matt. We'll, we'll come back to you for for the closing line. If if if. Thank you, Nadal, for helping us out with our sliding doors tennis, um, Matt. What would you like to submit? I'm going to go back to what I think might be the Lost Law years, maybe the end of the Lost Law years, 1997, David. I mean, to be fair, I've sorted my life out by then. Um, I'm quite happy to to go back to 97, yeah. Okay. What's happened in 97, Matt? Well, David's sorting his life out, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I probably got good recollection of this because I haven't blanked it out because of anxiety. (laughs) It's... um... This is a, actually perhaps a little bit of an overlap in terms of a sliding doors moment and a little bit of a lost in time, I think, as well. And this is Ooh. Martina Hingis's season in 1997. She is 16 years old and she wins three of the four Grand Slams, which I don't think is probably talked about enough. But I think perhaps one of the reasons why it's not talked about is the fact that she didn't win all four. She got to the final of the French Open. She was denied 
by Eva Maioli in that final. So she ended up winning three of the four slams that year. But the the fact is she was not fully fit or fully prepared for that year's French Open because of something which happened to her in April of that year. And that's the kind of sliding doors moment I've chosen. And that is that she fell off a horse in April of that year. Now, horse riding was her hobby. It was something she did quite frequently. She actually fell off a horse right at the start of the year in, at the Australian Open, but wasn't... Was she, she not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> but she wasn't injured in, in Melbourne, crucially, so she was able to go on and, and win that title. However, in April, she wasn't she wasn't quite so lucky. Um, she was riding her friend's horse called Tina. Oh, this is this is great, great info. <laughs> I mean, terrible horse name, but great info. Her own horse, horse was called call Montana. Horse yeah, that's more of a ho- horsey yeah. name. Yeah. yeah, but but her it's friend's like horse a was Tina. Do- a, a horse like Stuart or something. <laughs> you can't do that, Ian. No. Julia. Carry on, Matt. Apologies to all people who've got pets called Julia, Tina. Well, nobody does. Nobody does, David. There's no one to apologise to. As you were, Matt. Julia. What was Federer's cow called? Siobhan. Juliet. Juliet. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. John. (laughs) Um, But yeah, she was was thrown from Tina and, (laughs) and injured her knee. It was discovered that she'd suffered a slight tear of the posterior cruciate ligament and she had to oh, undergo, crikey, that's she had to undergo surgery deal. in Austria. I guess the point is that this massively affected her preparation for Roland Garros. At the time of her surgery, she was 31-0 for the year. She'd won titles in Sydney, Melbourne, Tokyo, Paris, Miami and Hilton Head. Then she fell off the horse and she missed over a month of tennis she missed all the Roland Garros leading events in Hamburg, Rome and Berlin. And yeah, she came into the French Open without the necessary preparation. Uh, she still managed to reach the final. But even when you look at her run, you see that it's nowhere near as dominant as her other runs at the slams that year. She was pushed to three sets in round two to Gloria Pizzicini. Oh, yeah. Gloria. Yeah. She was pushed to three sets in round four against Barbara Paulus. Yeah, I remember her. And then again in the semi-final against Monica Seles, which, you know, might seem like a fairly standard run to a Grand Slam final. But when you consider that she won every other Grand Slam that year, dropping only one set in 21 matches, the fact she lost three sets in six matches kind of shows how slightly off her game she was. And Clay, I think, was one of her favourite surfaces, really. I always remember Mary Carrillo talking about how natural Hingis was on Clay. Um, and in the end, she she gives a fairly flat performance in the final. Loses to a player playing brilliantly, has to be said. Um, 6-4, 6-2. And it just seemed, from what I watched and what I've read, that it just all caught up with her. She was flat. She started cramping in the final game. She did say that her left knee was slightly hindering her, a slight lack of mobility, perhaps. Um, I saw an interview she did with Bud Collins after, in which she gave, she actually gave great credit to um, Maioli. I was kind of expecting her to 
you know, be a little bit um, hingis about it. But <laughs> but she did she did say as well that she was kind of running on fumes. And one of her quotes afterwards that was that it was a wonder I could even compete at this tournament. So I just wow. think had Hingis not fallen off the horse, we may very well be talking about a 16-year-old winning all four Grand Slams in a season. Now, I know that once you've won two and three, that does affect how you then play the fourth. We kind of saw that with Serena, I think, a few years ago. There's so much more pressure. But she was so dominant and and so good that... And so, and, and so young, and, and so without that all, mental baggage. Exactly. Almost, she just she just played the sport. Didn't didn't think about all of that. I, th- I think it's quite likely that she would have won the calendar slam, age sixteen, and that would have been a a point in tennis history that we would always be talking about. This is this is a combination of tennis relived because we've got the the Bud Collins interview. <laughs> um, of lost in time because. You know, that achievement of winning three in a year isn't talked about enough just because it wasn't four. And sliding doors tennis because it, yeah, I think I think you're right. Had it, had it not been for Tina, very, very probably she would have won the calendar slam age 16. And, that's, and that would be talked you. about or it ought, ought to be talked about all the time. Is the sliding doors moment just that... Tina caused the loss of the calendar slam, which absolutely would have put her in a, a stratosphere alongside Steffi Graf, basically nobody else in terms of a season that we look back on and we talk about all the time. Um, or is it also what it might have done for the future? If you, if you consider how little she won after that, relatively speaking, mm. um, do you feel that it has affected the rest of her career? I've always thought with Hingis, the other sliding doors moment is that match we relived against Steffi Graf mm. at Roland Garros. That that damaging defeat she had from, what was it, setting a breakup mm. on, on N- Steffi Graf? 99. Yeah. yeah. And then, did she win another slam after that? I don't think she did. No. That to me has felt like the one where you can point to afterwards her not having the the same success ever again. I think she still won two more slams after the 97 season, both in Australia, I think. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a career which peaked so early on that I think there were, there were probably lots of moments in Hingis's career where you could think, could she have done more? Could she have won more? I guess the thing is she... She would have absolutely known the risk she was taking by continuing to horse ride. I'm sure there were all sorts of people around her telling her not to do that, including insurance companies. She wouldn't have been insured to do that. I know tennis players can't go skiing or sailing quite a lot of the time. They can't do anything that's considered sort of high injury risk because they're not insured for it. Um, So she would have absolutely been aware of that risk. I'm not saying that means, oh well, you know, she deserved it or she doesn't deserve any sympathy or it's not worth us speculating about what might have been. But it's interesting, you know, that maybe that's the fearlessness of being 16. You think, oh, well, it won't happen to me. Um, but Tina had other ideas. Hmm. So uh, j- just to conclude, I, I definitely feel like 
there's a, a strong chance that that we could have had that as the legacy of her career is that one year in a, and and it be talked about in a very different way. I, I am mindful that Eva Mayadi may just have played the match of her life and taken that away from her, regardless. Um, but I think that there's a very strong possibility that that it did rob Hingis of that memory and that moment. But I don't think it would have made a, a huge tangible difference to the rest of her career. Uh, I, I think the Williams sisters were coming. Davenport was coming. There were, there were too many big hitters mm. for her. And I also feel that Hingis lost motivation, lost desire. And I think it shook her when she started to lose a little bit um, because she was so good and so dominant. And I think it surprised her when she was unable to beat people anymore mm. or, or beat them with the regularity. Because, I mean... That year, 97, I remember the tennis vividly. It was bewitching what she could do. And and I thought she would go on and, yeah, I did think she would go on and dominate for years. Didn't see coming what happened in terms of the, the opposition and the the way the opposition would affect her and, and her own interest levels, I think. She, was too, she had too many other interests, if you like. Horse and that's riding. not a criticism of her in order to in order to be that ultra focused player and and a little bit like with Serena uh she she made i mean she made comebacks so so her career did have longevity of its own it, it just went in a a different a completely different route uh she she wasn't able to just keep coming back and get back to the same level again but uh, I, she just there was it was kind of a burnout i suppose Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. My first submission is 
probably almost undoubtedly the biggest and saddest um, sliding doors moment in tennis history, and that is the stabbing of Monica Selesh by a deranged Steffi Graf fan in Hamburg in 1993. Um, we touched upon it a bit, didn't we, with um, with elements of Tennis Relived in the summer, what might have been with Monica Selesh. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's a desperately sad question, Um but an interesting one as well. I mean, she she won her first Grand Slam age 16 in 1990. And actually before she won that slam and shortly before his death in 1990, Ted Tingling, who, of course, was a famous tennis historian and um, tennis dress designer, um, he said, Monica Seles is the most electric happening in tennis the most electric thing happening in tennis since Suzanne Longlin. She lights up the court and can hit the ball harder than anyone I've ever seen. Um, so she did become the youngest ever French Open champion that year, age 16. She beat Steffi Graf in the final. And at that stage, Steffi Graf had won nine of the previous 10 Grand Slam tournaments. Um, and then she ends that year by winning the WTA final. She beats Gabriella Sabatini in the final of that tournament in the first women's five-set match played since 1901, um, which is amazing. And then between 1991 and, of course, April of 1993, she won seven of the eight Grand Slam tournaments she entered and had a 55-1 and record in them. So in 1993... At the time of her stabbing, she had won eight Grand Slam titles in three years. She had, between 1991, January 1991 and February 1993, she made the finals of 33 of the 34 tournaments she entered, and she won 22 of them. She was the year-end number one in 1991 and 92. I mean, she was completely and utterly dominant in the era of peak Steffi Graf and with Martina Navratilova still there um, and Gabriella Sabatini still there and yeah uh, I found some quotes from I found some quotes from Martina Navratilova from Sports Illustrated a few years ago where um, Navratilova said mentally she was just so tough she was right up there with Chris Evert you couldn't crack her you never got the feeling she was panicked or pissed off, nothing. You could not read her body language. Up 6-4, four, four love, or down 6-4, four, four love, she was immaculate. And she lost a little bit of that. Not the hardness, but the supreme confidence. She lost her edge. Um, she says, we would be talking about Monica with the most Grand Slam titles. This, by the way, is before Serena got to, to 23 or even 22, I should say these quotes she said we'd be talking about monica with the most grand slam titles ahead of margaret court or steffi graf steffi had 22 but she didn't have anyone to play against this guy changed the course of tennis history no doubt about that um and pam shriver unfortunately david i don't you know have direct text access to pam shriver the way you do <laughs> so i'm having to use second-hand quotes also from this sports illustrated article but she said the sad thing about the whole thing to me was that besides the physical and emotional harm that was done to Monica, one of our great champions, it's that this guy, in the end, got exactly what he wanted. Um, Steffi Graf won the next four slams 
after Monica Sellers was stabbed. Um, and Sellers, of course, did return to the tour in 95 and won one further slam, the Australian Open in 96, something I'd love to to relive um, at some point in the future. Um, but something that Sellers said to, to Tim Adams in The Observer in 2009 after her retirement, she said, I'd grown up on a tennis court. It was where I felt most safe and most secure. And that day, everything was taken away from me. My innocence, my rankings, all my income, my endorsements, they were all cancelled. Um, and it's obviously desperately sad. Um and I know, I know some of what we were talking about with Hingis applies that some of that relentless dominance might have been down to the fearlessness of youth. It's possible she would have naturally lost a tiny bit of that confidence anyway, a couple of bad losses in bad situations and suddenly there's mental baggage where there never had been before. We'll never know if she would have been able to keep up that dominance. But eight grand slams by the age of 19... Um, and consistently getting the better of all her rivals. And after that, Steffi Graf goes on to win many more, including the next four after that stabbing. I mean, it's hard not to think that she would, at the very least, be one of the all-time greats in terms mm. of numbers. Well, I, th I think if you consider there was another five years before Serena or Venus were able to win mm. a, a Grand Slam between the two. Um, it, gives, it gives her a window before that becomes a possibility. Now, as you say, there are there are un, other unknown elements to the sliding doors nature of the story as to, to how she would have developed and whether injuries might have happened, etc., whether motivation would have remained the same. Based on the player that I witnessed and the stats that you just detailed there of, of eight grand slams by before she's 20. Uh, and what I saw with my own eyes, I think she would have won at least double what she ended up winning, which was nine grand slam singles titles. Uh, I just, uh, there was at that stage, it felt like there was nobody in her path and, and even Steffi Graf, yes, at Wimbledon, she beat her that one year in 92, but the French open win and the Australian open final win, of 93 were were graph playing well and Celis was still too much for her um so i i i think we may well have ended up with statistically the greatest player we've ever seen we we, we could have seen that the way she went about her her game um that's one Thing. And of course, we'll never know, but that's the whole point of sliding doors tennis. I, I do. I always thought that was a possibility, um, but I also think about it just in terms of the the human impact that it had on her and the the struggle she had afterwards to to kind of live a, a normal life as as she would have known it. I mean, she was in the early nineties. She was such an interesting character. She wasn't that popular. To, to be honest, as I recall it, you know, when she played Graf, more people supported Graf. Is my was my feeling watching fans. Obviously, she'd been around longer, um, and I don't think Celis always went that, down that well with people. But she didn't seem to care. 
she just seemed to do her own thing she was cool in her own way in that regard and and i just think she would have become a really interesting person as a as a sort of trajectory it would have been fascinating to follow her story as it as it turns out i think she's been an an inspiration in another way in the way she's handled all this in in more recent years but my god the the damage that it did to her it wasn't just the the physical wounds that day it was the the mental damage i mean she she ha- couldn't play tennis f- for more than 2 years psychologically she couldn't do it she couldn't go out there at all even when the the physical wounds had long since healed um and the damage that it did to her for the rest of her career her her issues with her own self-worth and and weight and and all those things and then later in life anxiety it's she would have led such a different life um i'm sure and uh you know that's quite hard to take but but at the same time you know a glory in her if you ever get chance to just watch matches of her in the early 90s playing these players you mentioned particularly the the sort of the french open and wimbledon runs okay she lost to graf in that final but what have a watch of her playing against martin and over in the 1992 semis sometime at wimbledon it was just amazing and uh, a match she played against martin and in the finals of rome um, I think in 1990, just before she went on to win her, her first slam at the French Open, so she's 16 at this stage. I think it's, I think she beats her one and two or something, and Martina comes off the court and says, I feel like I've been hit by a truck. And that was a 16-year-old. You know, it's quite interesting looking back on the career of Nadal and talking about him having two forehands. She was like that. You, mm. didn't, know mm. which, you didn't know which hand she played with from her ground strokes. They were just pistons, these shots, just coming at you. It's like a ball machine was just firing <laughs> these balls at a million miles an hour at you. And there's, and it really, and it never seemed to matter what spin you put on the ball to her, what trajectory, if it was a loop, if it was a slice, she would just hammer it at you. Um, amazing player. Can I ask about her rivalry with Graf? Because this, this has always fascinated me. I always think when... When this conversation comes up, inevitably, a side of this is Steffi Graf wouldn't have 22 slams if Selesh hadn't been stabbed. And I think that probably is, okay, you, you can't prove that it's true, but it's it, most people agree with that. But what I find interesting is the, is the effect that Selesh being there and not being there seemed to have on Graf. Because you've talked about how Selesh was starting to get the better of the rivalry with Steffi Graf. I was looking at those numbers. When when Selesh was stabbed, the head-to-head was still 6-4 in Graf's favour. But Selesh had won four of the last seven. So it was it was still quite even, but Selesh was starting to win more of them. Of their last four at the slams, Selesh had won two, the Australian Open and the French Open, and Graf had won on the faster surfaces, Wimbledon and the US Open. But what I find most interesting is that from that period, the start of Selesh's dominance, from the start of 1990 to the 1993 Australian Open, Graf took nine losses at slams, but only three of them were actually against Selesh. She lost to Novotna, she lost to Garrison, she lost to Sabatini, she lost to Sanchez Vicario twice, and she lost to Navratilova. 
So she was going through a little bit of a, a slump against the rest of the field, even taking out Selesh. Then what happens to Selesh happens, and Graf suddenly can beat everyone again, and she wins the next four. So was it necessarily a big matchup problem that Graf had against Selesh? Because when they met, it was still quite even. Or was it just Graf was going through a little bit of a slump during that period, perhaps because she had, for the first time, a proper rival? And then when that rival was out of the way, it kind of freed her up against the rest of the field. That's that's kind of the impression I've got, just literally looking at the numbers and reading about that period. I don't know whether that fits in with with how you both think about it. Yeah, David, what, uh, what did it feel like to you at the time? I mean, obviously, obviously the very sadly and unfortunately the the perception from Gunther Parke Parch mm, um Parch. who who committed the stabbing he was a crazy Steffi Graf fan <laughs> his yeah. his intention was to to take out the biggest obstacle to Steffi Graf being dominant so obviously whether in reality or not in his mind um Monica Sellers was was a threat in that rivalry. How did it feel like to you at the time, Dave? Because I, I agree with you, Matt. When I looked at the just on paper the statistics of that rivalry, it wasn't quite the the narrative, the arc that I was expecting to see. I was expecting to see, you know, Graf getting the better of her at the beginning, then a period of of it being quite even, and this gradual sort of Sellers taking over type curve. And it, well, it isn't quite as simple as that. I w- I was a Steffi Graf fan at the time before I was working in tennis. So when we went into those matches, I was hoping Graf would win. It felt by the time they'd got to 92, it felt like Selesh was just the superior player. And that when they played each other, it was it was like being a Roger Federer fan when your man plays Nadal. And you feel mm. like, oh no, my, my player, doesn't really matter what they do, can't seem to get the better of this one. Now, you may well look at the 6-2-6-1 scoreline of that Wimbledon final and think, well, you know, Graf Hammeder there. But I just don't feel that that is properly representative of the rivalry. The, the, Graf had been dominant on clay. She'd won the 87 and 88 French Opens, and yet she, she lost out to Sellers whilst playing brilliantly in the final, still lost. The Australian Open was probably even more jarring because – you know, she she beat her six two in the third, I think, Selesh, um, shortly afterwards. Um w- Wimbledon was just I think for a two handed player on both sides trying to handle the low bounces, particularly of the grass in those days, was was really difficult. So I, I kind of I, I whilst uh, I as a graph fan was pleased that she won that final, Selesh still worried me as a as a rival to her. She had the she was the antidote really i i also think it does need to be borne in mind that graf had already won the golden slam by that time in 1988 and you wonder whether there was a motivation issue for her for a while um just to keep on regenerating and doing this but i think i think that Sellis rattled her she was mm. the only player that she played that when graf was at her very best would would still lose to um that's how it felt at the time Gosh, I mean, it's a desperately sad. I keep making things sad, don't I? I keep doing really sad submissions for my 
for my uh, suggestions about We've got happy ones. The Has Matt got a jolly one to end well, part one on? except we've got news. We have to do news. Oh, right. Okay, what we got? So should we save our happy ones? Should we do a little tease about what's to come in Sliding Doors Tennis on Thursday? Yeah, we've well, got, I've, I think I've, I've already teased my Henman Rain. You, yes, we've already teased that. We've got quite a lot of Federer-related material coming your way from Matt. Match points that could have been tweeners yes. on match points, volleys missed, yes. that sort of vibe. And a, and the sad Del Potro one. Oh, okay. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, reel those listeners in, Matt. <laughs> um. But yes, I think we should probably uh, devote the remainder of this podcast. I probably should have done this at the beginning, but I was very carried away with the past, David. Um, so we're going chronologically. Uh, we'll bring you right Proud up you, to Catherine. date now. <laughs> bring you right up to date now with tennis news, because we have a WTA calendar for the start of the 2020 season. We have confirmed men's and women's tennis for 2021 this is how the calendar looks from the 5th of january um we've got a wga 500 event of course they've they've rebranded the levels of the tournament so wga 500 uh from the 5th of january in abu dhabi then there is australian open qualifying from the 10th of january in dubai then, uh, like with the men's from the 1st of february we have melbourne one and melbourne two happening simultaneously. Uh, and then from the 8th of February, of course, it's the Australian Open. And uh, after that, uh, we don't know. I'm sure talks, etc., are ongoing. So we have a Middle Eastern swing and then we have a whole lot of Melbourne. Mm. Same as we were talking about last week. I think they've, they've all done a good job. They've, they've done a clever job to work out a way to have a preview event and a uh, and a qualifying, and then the quarantine, and then another another tournament, and then the slam. I think I think they've done a really good job, actually. The tours of figuring out some sort of solution here. Still, I st- I do sort of think now, you know, now that we've had what we've happened had happen here of tier four, for for instance, you know, players getting to Dubai and Doha from the UK and stuff like that. There's I I haven't really considered all those elements that this feels still feels like there are various barriers to to any of this stuff happening. Um, Certainly for Brits, I mean, we're being banned banned from most countries, aren't we? I mean, ports mm. are being shut down, even trade trade routes are being closed down uh, from this country at the moment. It's great being here, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the walls are closing in. <laughs> they really are. We're going to run out of food soon. Uh, okay, and then Brexit. Ah, oh, what a what a treat of a time. Podcast carrying on there, folks. <laughs> so we've got is um, the rock that we're clinging to. Um, I found out that Melbourne won in the certainly on the ATP side is being advertised as Melbourne won slash Adelaide because it's the it's the one that is been moved from Adelaide. That's how they're distinguishing between them other than the one and two in terms of kind of geeky point stuff. That is quite interesting in terms of what event you enter. And maybe from a sponsor if that's relevant. Oh, God, we're going to have to call them both different tournaments. We're going to have to call one of them like the (laughs) What's It Bank Open brought to you by (laughs) What's It Phone. And then we're going to have to call the other one Different Bank, Different Phone. 
<laughs> open. At least, uh, at least Adelaide's not going to have any exclamation marks. They're, Isn't they it? I not... hope so. Yeah, um, they're, they're no. lacking an exclamation mark. I mean, come on, they're not even having any punctuation. It's just like Adelaide, mate. I think if, <laughs> if there's anything we need during this pandemic, it's exclamation marks at the end of things. <laughs> Um, but anyway, tennis is going to happen, and that's that's great. In typical, um, uh, oh, sorry, Matt, crack so on. I was going to say we've had the we've had the first little drip feeding of rumours about practice partners. Oh yes. Well, hang on. Shall I? Well, I'll ju- I'll just uh, bring you news of uh, the fact that in typical Australian Open fashion, they're being very bullish about who's going to go, uh, who's going to play there. Craig Tyler said every player, including Roger has made a commitment to to travel to uh to the Australian Open. We've got um uh we've got we've not got quotes from Roger Federer, have we? We've the last quotes we've got from him are what we just dis- discussed last week saying it's a race against time for him to be fit. But but Craig Tiley said every player, including Roger, has made a commitment to travel to Melbourne to play. We have been in touch with him and his team and it's been three days now. He's hit for the first time in Dubai. He's in his normal pre-season training, training routine. It's like he's uh, Federer PR. He did say that February 8th was a more suitable date for him in terms of preparing for the Australian Open, but a lot will depend on how he responds to his surgery in the next two to three weeks of training. Um, no specific mention of Serena. I'd be very interested to know what her thoughts are at the moment um in terms of restrictions and um quarantine plans in place uh, craig tidy has said if there are any breaches of quarantine the player will be immediately removed from the country as well as being fined um and i believe the restrictions are that uh, the players are in in quarantine hotels they are allowed five hours of the day not a minute more outside their hotel rooms and that's sliced up as two hours for training with a designated practice partner more news of that in a moment two hours of gym time and then an hour of uh, is allowed for transit time and very specific um shuttles will be laid on for players they're only allowed to to eat in the vicinity of their training buddy and their their team and we are starting as you said matt to get news of tennis training buddies yes i i'm so in on this concept <laughs> <It's great. laughs> we we we've heard nadal and sinner is apparently a first week pairing and then they're going to join up apparently with Schwartzman and Wawrinka, who are also a first-week pairing. And in the second week, you're able to become a four. Oh, right. Mm. Right. Okay. I, I mean, imagine some of the awkward conversations oh, that it, go on. I, I mean, need to know. It's tricky for Sinner because you you can't, can't say no. Down. But is Nadal the best practice partner for him? I don't I don't know. Are either of them? I mean, they're well, just no. going to spend the whole well, time teeing off each other. Well, I presume Nadal thinks that Sinner is because he can have his pick, presumably. Nobody's turning down just that. Just imagine if, if you just said, sorry, Rafa, I'd, <laughs> I don't really I don't really want to practice with you for five. I mean, f- f- that's too long. Five hours a day, every day for two weeks. No, two, two, hour, two hours of practice. And then two, I think right. you can do your own thing in the gym. I mean, it could be awkward though, couldn't mm. it? Imagine that when you get jilted. He's such a unicorn, Nadal, isn't he, in terms of the way he plays that mm. you don't feel like it's necessarily 
good practice for the rest of the field. But I guess it for someone like Sinner, it's interesting to see how Nadal trains. Um, I wonder whether Nadal has picked him because he wants to slightly work him out a little bit. You know, he, he, <laughs> Sinner, Sinner troubled him at the French Open, mm. probably more than any other player in mm. that tournament. Statistically, you'd be thinking as a right-hander. I mean, how many left-handers am I going to come mm. up against? I'm not going to play with him. I, I, do, I think for the women, it's going to be very interesting because generally speaking, they prefer to hit with male hitting partners um and uh, you uh, okay you could say or they can hit with their coach but i believe for court space purposes they actually have to hit with another player there isn't sufficient space on practice courts for them to have the luxury of 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 hitting hitting with a, a hitting partner um so that is going to be very interesting because they're so much less accustomed to to practicing with with one another, I think it happens a little bit more than it than it used to, but relative to the men's tour, it's 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 extremely rare. Um, and I, I don't think we've heard any any rumours, or have we, Matt? No, I was just thinking maybe Monfils will. Uh, oh yes, will partner with Svitolina. Is that the best thing for Monfils though? And does he care? <laughs> well, there is that. Possibly not. Um, yeah, well, that, well, that's going to be interesting. Are, are, are there any other tennis relationships at the moment? There's unexpected Yulia Gerges and Wesley Kulhoff, but she's just retired. I'm sure she can you know, be a decent hitting partner. Um, well, she's retired to get away from all that, though, David. <laughs> yeah, I don't think two weeks in the bubble that you're not even going to play <laughs> the tournament is what, is what she has in mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, it's I. This is my favourite element of all of it. Honestly, all this blooming surveillance stuff that Tennis Australia does. This is what they need to be mm, miking up yes. and putting these cameras. Well up said, for. David. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We need we need to know how these conversations are happening. And we want to bug calls. Yeah, we want video <laughs> of the sessions. Just give it. Give it all to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully there'll be more more news on that front by uh, by Thursday. Imagine if you didn't get to pick and that all the names just went in a hat. Or imagine you just had to pick at the same argument like, that that should be happening. Or imagine, imagine there was that. a draft. Yes. Like in US sports. Just get left on the shelf. Loved it. Yeah. I mean, we all know who's on, on shelves, don't we? <laughs> it's so interesting. I, would be, uh, I, <laughs> I think I read a piece in L'Equipe. I can't remember who the quote was from, but they were saying that nobody wants to pick Karlovich. <laughs> is Karlovich still he would have to qualify wouldn't he but you know yeah, he will I guess, yeah. and then like nobody wants to play with him at all <laughs> presumably John Isner and Riley Apelka are going to have the same problems they'll have to go for gonna, one another won't they that's what'll what end up happening what we're going to do now Evo we'd just like to do a cross court drill top spin backhand <laughs> to top spin backhand is that right he says, you can try. Or, I can try. I've only got a slice. No, 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 we need a top spin back here. The, the big servers will have to go with one another, surely. I mean... A, a Pelka and Isner, I predict. Uh, or maybe Isner and Query. Nobody wants Query. Benoit Pair is on that shelf, isn't he? Benoit Pair and Nick Kyrgios can partner up. They'd have a great time. They get on really famously, those two. Yeah, but... Benoit Pair is sort of seems like a high COVID risk. He's the 
He's the card player. I wouldn't want to be in a bubble with Ben Marpair, put it that way. <laughs> he's not top he's not top of my list. I'd rather be in a bubble with Nick Kyrgios. Right. Um yeah, Kyrgios don't you think Kyrgios will take pity on Sitsipas? I think that might happen. I think Do we you? could have Stefanik. Yeah, because I think Sitsipas is liable to be left on the shelf. And I think Kyrgios saying... has got a bit of a sort of like, you know, protective yeah slightly doesn't want him to get but the cool kid kind of protecting him from getting bullied even though he was the bullier for a while well yeah but i think he's remorseful about that yeah i I think kyrios could end up actually getting a a female hitting partner yeah maybe if if they want him or well yeah putting himself (laughs) out there for Oh, that was a burn though. If you make yourself available to women everywhere and nobody takes you up on it, that's that's not a good look, is it? (laughs) Stephanos, I tried tried to get a woman, but uh, (laughs) I'm going to have to go with you, seeing as you're on the shelf. Um, Yeah, it's going to be Bublik and Pear, I think, because they'll be... They'll be on the shelf together. Uh, the other news that I've got, well, is it news? We had, uh, we've had we had some Battle of the Brits kind of formalised practice matches taking place at the National Tennis Centre, um, organised by the LTA and Jamie Murray, as with the sort of previous incarnations of Battle of the Brits. It's slightly less competition-y, feely. It's definitely sort of practice matches that are being broadcast and made made available for for people to watch and yesterday we saw Dan Evans against Andy Murray yeah I, I would actually say it, it had, had almost a feel of Dominic team against Rafael Nadal on the Margaret Court Arena mm. in Australia you know it, it was it had got all the the looks of a match but it was effectively a practice match but my word were they going at it I mean the the first set was seven six and it was an hour and 24 minutes <laughs> um, and it was really good competition you know they, they were rusty obviously but I felt there were real signs of encouragement for Murray there um, I he I've often been struck by how stiff he looks out on court and in recent months and and certainly felt like that early on in this match but that left him as the as the set wore on and he looked looser and he looked like he was running full pelt at balls and trying to hit the ball harder and um yeah I thought it was really encouraging for him who do you think those two would want as their practice partners in Australia I wonder what they may well take each other take each other hmm I mean, I'm, I have no inside info at all on that. I'm just thinking they get on pretty well, um, you know, and they're and they're properly competitive, both of them, which I think is probably quite important. What do you think, Matt? Murray's uh, an injury risk. I'd say mm. that makes him slightly less desirable. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I feel like Murray needs someone who he can build up strength against that's that's still my concern with Murray when we've seen him over five sets at the last two slams how he just hasn't quite had it in his legs it seemed um mm. needs more of a ball machine type maybe. player I don't, or maybe that would knacker him out I don't know mm. um that 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 feels like where the issue is because as, as David says his his tennis still looks really sharp when he is mm. playing well mm. Oh, it's certainly good to see them going full throttle at one another. Um, Yeah, made me look forward to tennis happening. 
been up for a while. January 5th, how far away is that now? Two and a half, two and a half weeks? Is that about right? Yeah. We're in that phase of the year where time loses all all meaning. All I know is that in three days I'll have a puppy. Yes. That's, That's the, the news real we news. want. That's the news we want. <laughs> yeah. Plans to uh, retrieve Billie Jean have been accelerated. And by the next podcast recording, I will have a puppy on my lap. Quite cool. So we, we, we get an extra extra podcaster. Yes. Yes, I'm sure she will be vocal. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we'll we'll be back with more Sliding Doors Tennis, won't we, on, uh, on Thursday. Um, hope you've enjoyed this one. And, yeah, any other news? Is that it? No? Yeah, it. I thought you were I looking at me like it. there was other news. No. I, I misint- oh. misinterpreted your your um facial expressions david what what i have got is uh a couple of uh, obituaries that i just wanted to mention oh yes um, because um over the past couple of weeks uh, tennis ha- has lost a couple of quite significant figures um one of which was gordon forbes who was the author of a handful of summers and a couple of other books about his life in tennis in the 50s and 60s he's died at the age of 86 and there's a really good obituary written on the ATP Tour website by Richard Evans, who's one of the longest standing members of the tennis media and who you may remember contributed to our Althea Gibson and Arthur Ashe podcasts recently. And Richard wrote about Gordon Forbes being a very good tennis player himself um, and a Roland Garros doubles runner-up, a Wimbledon doubles semi-finalist, but he said a better writer Uh, He said he was a writer of unique style and observation, a writer with the priceless gift of sprinkling stardust on the characters who inhabited his books, turning backhands and banter into tales infected with laughter. And Forbes himself wrote about his own style of play. It's quite quite fascinating to to witness his his self-deprecating style of writing. And he said, rushing the net on a really slow Italian court while using the Pirelli balls of the early 60s was an eerie experience, like being in a movie, half of which was speeded up while the other half was in slow motion. I was the speeded up part. I'd come barreling up to the net only to arrive there far too early and have to hop about in a frenzy of suspense while my opponent, who often seemed to be a Piotrangeli or Merlot, decided on which side to pass me. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I, I, I would love to go back and read those books now, actually, just having read that passage, to be quite mm. honest. A Handful of Summers is an incredible book. I, I would, if anyone wants any kind of insight into what life was like as an amateur tennis player you know a top a top one but an amateur in that era the 50s and 60s it's so full of anecdotes and um it's just a, it's a different world it's a it's a chronicling of a different world you know i think if you had a tennis book now so much of it would be set in gyms and practice courts and this is set in bars and restaurants and it's it's so many great stories beautifully told it's it's one Lovely. of the all-time great tennis books, I think. Literally ordering it on Amazon as we speak. <laughs> That's the clicking <laughs> the other, you can hear. The other um, person I wanted to mention was Dennis Ralston, uh, uh, who was a runner-up at Wimbledon in singles in 1966 and a five-time doubles Grand Slam champion. He's died at the age of 78. Uh, as well as being a very good tennis player, he was highly regarded as a coach. I always remember this from 
my earlier years of, of, of following tennis and uh, Chris Evert played rich tribute to him on Twitter. She, she was coached by him for six years and wrote very fondly about him, as did Gabriella Sabatini, who was, was also coached by Dennis Ralston. Um, and, uh, yeah, our thoughts are with the family and friends of both of them. And, and yeah, very sad news that both of them have passed uh, in the past couple of weeks. Mm, absolutely. Well said. Another sad note to end on. <laughs> we just can't help ourselves. Um, but we hope you're enjoying the podcasts, and uh, yeah, we're, we're thinking of we're thinking of everybody that's struggling. We're grateful, so grateful to be funded for next year, so that we know we'll be able to to keep bringing you these podcasts, come what may. And um, we'll be back with another one on Thursday, puppy in tow, and uh, and we can't wait. So thank you, and uh, we'll speak to you then. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.